Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you for who you are and all you've done. For all that you continue to do and for all that you will do. We thank you, Lord, for inviting us into this space, for being present to us as we just show up and discover that you are already here. Now may these words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of every one of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, good morning, Riverside. I am Andrew, and today we are going to talk about fasting. Fasting is the fifth practice in our practices series, and fasting is defined as refraining from eating food for a period of time. That's literally what it is, okay? So if you didn't know, that's the basic definition, refraining from eating food for a period of time. We're going to talk more about that. Um, I want to give a disclaimer, though, right at the beginning about fasting. I acknowledge that people can have all sorts of different and even damaging relationships with food. Um, so if you have any experience or struggle with eating disorders and that sort of thing, I understand that those are very real and painful. And I don't want you to hear anything that I say about fasting to be a blanket recommendation for all people. And I don't want you to feel inferior if you feel like you can't participate in that way. Um, some people need doctor's consultations before they fast. I completely affirm that and want to just say that right at the outset. Um, and I also want to say that fasting is not commanded of God's people. It's not something that you have to do. It is like you must do this. Um, but it is definitely a practice that can yield, f yield fruit for the life of faith. We'll talk a little bit more about <clears throat> what it is and isn't as we go along today. Um, so all the practices we've talked about so far are practiced, initiated, or both by Jesus. They're either practiced by Jesus, initiated by Jesus, or both. He practiced them and initiated them. Uh, Jesus faithfully upheld and practiced the Sabbath, even though he got into some pretty serious trouble for how he practiced the Sabbath. He did practice the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus underwent baptism and practiced fable, tab, fable fellowship. Table fellowship, actually, is what he practiced. Um, and he initiated baptism in the Spirit and a new covenant in his blood, right? He initiated those things. And he set the table, and he sets the table every week for our practice of sacraments. Jesus had a rich and intimate life of prayer with the Father. Jesus learned, taught, and practiced the scriptures with an authority greater than the world had ever seen. And Jesus most certainly also practiced fasting. Right at the beginning of his public ministry, right after his baptism by John the Baptist, he spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness. By entering, by entering into all the practices covered in this series, we are stepping into, again, practices that Jesus practiced. We are emulating Jesus' life and in some very basic ways living as Jesus lived. Uh, practicing the Way, which is a resource, points out that fasting is found all over the Hebrew Scriptures. In the book of Exodus with Moses' 40-day fast on Mount Sinai, David, Samuel, Esther, the prophets, and that by the time of Jesus, it was very common practice for the Jewish people to practice, tw practice fasting twice a week. Uh, the early Christians then continued this practice as evidenced in the Didache, which was the first Christian writing that we have outside of the New Testament, where fasting was commanded for the church, for the people of Jesus, 
every Wednesday and Friday, two days a week. That is, every week, twice a week, no food until sundown. That was a regular practice. In fact, early Christians were so intent and so devoted to fasting that they had to put rules around days that they couldn't fast so that they wouldn't fast too much. How do you think about that? That, That's probably not the same problem that we have today. Uh, Christian fasting is always linked with prayer. There's an element of communing with Jesus in fasting, like in a small way suffering with Jesus. Again, a very small way, but a small way suffering with Jesus, lifting something repeatedly up to God during a fast. So throughout today's teachings, I probably won't say the word prayer often enough. I will just keep talking about fasting, but I, I hope that you see the partnership between prayer and fasting together as when you do fast, prayer is just assumed. It is a part of the process, prayerful fasting. And fasting is extremely popular. Did you know this? At least in the publishing world, fasting is very popular. If you do an internet search on fasting or an Amazon search on fasting, you'll have to probably scroll through at least a full page before you get to anything that has anything to do with faith. Uh, Fasting is common in just about every type of faith practice, but physical and mental health benefits of fasting are very apparently real and very popular in the publishing world. Um, And I think that one of the main reasons that fasting is popular topic is that it promises some sort of results, right? Fasting promises some kind of results. Clarity, health, energy, maybe weight loss, maybe immortality. (laughs) Okay, maybe not that. But fasting gets popular in faith circles as well, um, including Christian faith circles, also because of the results promised, like miracles or healing or forgiveness or clarity or safety or hope or answers, right? We, We put these things before God and we're hoping for a certain result. Fasting can and does yield results in, the lives, in our lives of faith. But even if fasting is just something you plug into your weekly or monthly or seasonal calendar, in Christian pac- practice, fasting is fundamentally a responsive thing. It is a responsive practice. But what is it in response to? Why do we pray? Why do we fast? Why do we fast and pray? Okay. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight calls fasting this. This is a definition. The natural, inevitable response of a person to a grievous, sacred moment in life. The natural, inevitable response of a person to a grievous, sacred moment in life. So, maybe you've experienced this. Have you ever had to remind somebody to eat after they experienced a significant hardship? Have you eaten anything? Why don't you eat something? You might feel better. That person may not be fasting on purpose, but they're just simply giving in to the natural, inevitable response to a grievous, sacred moment in their life. And in a way, scheduling a fast, like scheduling a fast every week or every month or during the season of Lent or something like that, scheduling a fast... can be our response to the inevitable grievous things that we encounter in life, right? Just getting out ahead of the fact that we're encountering grievous things all the time. You know what I'm talking about? Um, Just yesterday, for the first time, the big fire that happened um, in town just 
couple blocks from my house. I drove past it for the first time yesterday, and there were a couple people standing out in front of the house just weeping, and just teddy bears just lying across the whole street. You know, these six children that died in our community in a house fire. It's grievous, right? And it doesn't take much to remind us just how broken this world is, just how vulnerable people are. I just happened to be fasting yesterday as well. But it felt right. It felt like the natural, inevitable response to just witnessing that. So, let's look at fasting. There's generally three, three, three parts of fasting, A, B, and C. A is the same grievous thing. It's the, the thing that prompts the fasting, the moment or condition that leads to fasting. It can be death, it can be sin, it can be fear, it can be threats, it can be needs, it can be sicknesses, confusion, intercession for yourself or for others. Uh, that, it's like whatever the, whatever the thing is that you're lifting up is A. And in the B column, we have the fasting itself. That's the period of time that you take not eating food as a response to that sacred grievous thing. We turn to fasting in these moments precisely because we believe they're not just grievous but also sacred. That there is room for God in the grief and fasting is a way to invite God into that. And then C is the results of the fasting. So that could be, I mean, whatever we're, whatever we're thinking the results of fasting could be. Could be miracles, could be healing, could be life, could be forgiveness, could be safety and protection, could be hope, answers, discernment, health. This is often the sort of stuff that we long for on the other side of fasting. So that's the C, right? A, B, and C. Take a guess. So there's a progression from A to B and a progression from B to C. Take a guess which progression most of the fasting resources on Google are focused on. A to B or B to C? Come on, B to C, right? Shocker, the one that leads to results. Results sell books, baby. And if you can promise or guarantee a certain result or at least make it look like that on the cover, some people might want to pick it up and buy it. Right? Fast your way to, what, a perfect marriage. I, I don't know how that works. I'm very interested. Let me, let me read this book, right? <laughs> um, the Bible is full of fasting with intent. And the results do matter, right? The results of fasting do matter. And we do often fast with, with results in mind, some sort of preferred conclusion. But the, for the Christian practice of fasting, the lion's share of our focus is the progression from A to B. From the sacred grievous thing to the response of fasting. And for the rest of our time, I want to focus on two really large categories of sacred grievous things that we respond to with fasting. And one is our own flesh, and the other is the plight of the poor. These are two sacred grievous things that we respond to with fasting. Our own flesh, our own sinful nature, the sin that lives in us, and the plight of the poor. So, Let's start with the flesh. I'll just knock these out one at a time, all right? Romans chapter 7, Paul vividly describes this struggle with what he calls the flesh or the sinful nature, the law of sin, the body that is subject to death. We'll pick it up in verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. 
And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. This isn't the Bible, by the way. I love these, this, this language. As it is, it is no longer myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature or flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I just delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now, that's a big, big passage, and I'm not going to answer all the questions raised by this passage or fully exegete it even. But I want to point out that Paul, in his theology, the body is very much a temple of the Holy Spirit. That is an important thing for Paul. But it is also a body that is subject to death. In this mortal life, experiencing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is perhaps the greatest, most miraculous thing we could experience. But even as we are filled with the Spirit and experience more sanctification in our lives, being really shaped and transformed by God, we're still limited by our flesh, still limited also by our physical bodies. So many have read this passage, Romans 7, and believe that Paul was writing this from the perspective of his life before Christ, before coming to know Christ. You may have heard that. And I fully understand that perspective. And Paul really is tapping into a personal and theological desperation that we don't see elsewhere in his writings in that passage. But what if Paul is just describing the fight that it is to live in the Spirit every day? Every day, day after day, in a world that desires to take us down and with malformed inner desires that also want to take us down. Can you relate to that? There are external forces that are fighting against us and there are internal forces that are fighting against us. Maybe Paul's just describing that. And what if fasting is a way to enter into that fight proactively? What if fasting is a way to make our body our ally instead of our enemy in our fight against the flesh or the sinful nature? If this is the case, that fasting actually strengthens us for the fight against the flesh or the sinful nature, then Jesus fasting in the wilderness is actually a stroke of genius that I had never even realized. Because the enemy thinks that Jesus is weaker because he's fasting, right? He hasn't eaten any food. He's very weak. He's hungry. Perhaps if I offer him a loaf of bread or offer him a stone, he'll turn it to bread, right? All these ideas. But the fast, what if the fast is actually strengthening Jesus for the temptations of the enemy, right? And I think that's the theology that we hold. Our bodies are not bad or evil, our bodies, our physical bodies. But flesh is this New Testament term, not for our bodies, but for our evil desires and the flesh. It's hard to distinguish, but I'm trying to do it a little bit here. We can use our bodies to feed those evil desires or to fight those evil desires, 
And fasting might just be able to help us lean into the power of the Spirit rather than relying on bodily comforts all the time when we face temptations or when we feel dis-ease. And if you have an ongoing battle with your flesh or with some sinful desire, whether it's laziness or lust or crippling fear or overindulgence or rage, I'm not saying that a one-day fast will fix it, okay? I'm not saying fast for a day and you'll probably be cured. Um, But fasting could be part of your ongoing physical and spiritual training to fight the battle against that evil that doesn't want to let go of you. Does that make sense? The grievous reality, the grievous sacred reality might become sacred when you invite Jesus into it through regular fasting and prayer. That's a lot to chew on, right? I probably should stop, but I have one more. I promise one more point, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit it. <laughs> so we as individuals have our fights, our battles to fight against the evil desires of the flesh. As citizens of the world, we are also given a battle to fight on behalf of the poor and the oppressed. So Isaiah 58, which Courtney just read for us, begins with Israel crying out to God. Why have we fasted, they say? And you have not seen it. They're crying out to God. Why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And it very quickly moves to to God's response. Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. As you please, you exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect to be heard. Expect your voice to be heard on high. Okay. I'm not going to read the whole, the whole passage again because Courtney read it so well. Um, we could call the battle against our flesh, like in Romans 7, some, some kind of formational fasting. Fasting that does something in us, formationally. But Isaiah reminds us that fasting is also something that is somehow missional. That fasting can be something that's not just for us, but also for the world. The fasting that the Lord has chosen is both formational and missional. And the people of Israel have fasted, but it has not formed them. They're depriving themselves of food. They're lying in sackcloth and ashes, but their behavior does not reflect godliness. They're clearly not being formed in godliness if they're exploiting workers, quarreling, fighting, punching each other, right? Striking each other with fists. That's what that is, right? Punching each other. What Isaiah says about fasting is the most prolonged teaching on fasting in all of the scripture. And it, it doesn't fit our categories. Of, it's like, well, what, what, are the, what are the benefits of, of not eating for a day? And Isaiah is just throwing all those categories out the door and saying, this is all about justice and this is all about oppression of the poor. The fast should do this, according to Isaiah. Fight injustice, free people from oppression. You should share your food with the hungry. Provide shelter to refugees, immigrants, and those with no home. Clothe the naked and meet the practical needs of people all around you. That's what fasting should do. These are grievous sacred things that we are to fast in response to. Injustice, oppression, hunger, homelessness. And somehow, fasting relates to that. And I'm still learning this. I'm still learning what this means and how this works. What does it look like 
to fast in response to this. I mean, one, one way is something, one really practical way is something like a hunger strike, which is probably not for everybody, right? A method of solidarity for a very long time, from Gandhi to Oscar Romero, has brought awareness and solidarity to issues of injustice, right? But again, that might not be for everybody. A, a hunger strike might not be a practical thing for everybody to participate in. So what else? Isaiah 58, I, I don't know what else. I want to say that. I don't know. But, but I think Isaiah 58 brings light to a reality that we can't ignore. That is, if we're going to voluntarily give up eating food for a period of time, fast, if we're going to do that, it has to open our eyes to the people who are experiencing hunger actually in our community. Otherwise, there's a complete disconnect, and we're not following Jesus with our fasting. I think that's pretty clear from Scripture. If I'm choosing to be hungry right now, how could I ignore the people in my community who are hungry not by choice? Right? There's an issue of solidarity here. And there's even a beautiful tradition in the church of collecting the food or the money that you would spend on food during a fast and somehow giving it to the poor and the vulnerable. There's good ways to do that and bad ways to do that, I'm sure. But I want to land today with this idea of fasting as something that is both formational and missional. The term that we used when we came up with what became Jess's job description was missional discipleship. And I think fasting can be something that pushes us in that direction. It can be both discipleship and missional. It is formational and it is transformational for ourselves and for the world. Fasting can transform our hearts and our behaviors. It can assist us in our battle against the flesh. And being formed in our battle against the flesh puts a fire in our belly for God's vision of a community, a new community of justice and righteousness. A fast can cleanse us from apathy, free us from our sinful patterns. God desires both of these things for us. He desires us to be formed, and he desires us to be sent. Will fasting do that? Not on its own. <laughs> fasting is not a magic bullet to, like, all of a sudden be a perfect, perfectly missional disciple. But it can help. And is God about the business of transforming us like that? Yes. And God uses all these practices to do that in our lives. He forms us and he sends us. And if we have a posture of faithfulness to him, he can do all sorts of things through us. And you might say to me, Pastor, Andrew, why have you chosen to speak about fasting on the day of a fellowship meal? Was that the elephant in the room that I should have mentioned earlier? One of the rules that the Didache put in place for the early church was that Christians are not allowed to fast on the Sabbath day, on the Lord's day. Okay? So even during Lent, you take up something, you fast from something. You don't fast on Sundays. That's the Lord's day. That's always the Lord's day. Now, can you make an exception, of course? They did it okay. That was their rule. Again, this, we don't have to be legalistic about this stuff. But the Lord's Day is a day of celebration. Save your fasting for another day. That's my encouragement to you um, because there's going to be food today. And, uh, well, there already is food. 
you probably smell it. Um, and also, I want to point out that fasting is a temporary practice. Fasting is not a practice that will exist into the kingdom forevermore. Do you think there will be fasting in the kingdom of God? I don't think so. I mean, there may not, our relationship with food might be totally different. We may not need to eat. I have no idea. But I know that there won't be like a willful deprivation in order to grieve the things of, that are broken. Because what? Nothing will be broken anymore. There will be nothing left to grieve. No more grievous sacred acts for us to fast in response to. So we praise God for the day that we will not have to fast. So when we come to the table today and we take this food into our bodies and we are thankful for the gifts of God and thankful for the nourishment of God, and when we feast together around bigger tables and enjoy a full meal together and we give thanks for the gifts of God, we do so because this is our destiny. This is our destination as believers. This is our, our eternal home is a celebration. It is the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is feasting. So fasting is temporary, but it might be necessary because of all the grievous things we face. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all the ways that you're working in our hearts, teaching us new things, shaping us through faith practices. And we do thank you, Lord, for this reality that fasting is a temporary thing. Fasting is a temporary thing because grief is a temporary thing, because suffering is a temporary thing, because sin and brokenness are temporary things that have been conquered and one day will be eliminated. So Lord God, continue to shape us, continue to form us deeply in our own hearts and in the way we interact with the most vulnerable in this world. And Lord, fill us with your abundance at this abundant feast that we might share with a world that is hungry. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.